Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles this morning, if you'll open up to the book of Ezra. Ezra chapter 1, I'll give you a minute to find that one. It's hidden away there in, uh, in the back of your, New Te- of your Old Testament there, sorry. If you look in the New Testament, you're not going to find Ezra. If you get to the First and Second Chronicles, you're almost there, and uh, hopefully you'll get there pretty quickly. We're going to begin a new series this morning uh, that I've entitled Breakthrough. And I don't know if you're like me or not, but there are times in my life that I look back on. One I had just this past year in 2014 where you, you just feel stuck. Have you ever experienced a time like that in life? Uh, you just feel stuck. There there's just doesn't seem to be any kind of of forward motion, you know, maybe prior to that there was a time when, when things were moving and going and then you just get to this time in life where everything just seems to come to a screeching halt and, and all you can see in front of you just seems like this brick wall and you got nothing to get through that wall with but your bare hands and try as you might, you beat against that sucker and it just, it doesn't go anywhere. There are times like that in life and, and what we're going to talk about through this series is is how do we go from that place of, of being stuck to that moment of breakthrough? We're going to see the beginning of it this morning as we talk about where breakthrough begins. The whole book of Ezra is a story of breakthrough. How the people of Israel were stuck, and, and not just in a neutral zone, they were stuck in exile in Babylon, a place they did not want to be, in a place that they had been for 70 years. And then God shows up and does something amazing. And maybe right now in your life, in your marriage, in your workplace, in your relationships, in your prayer life, somewhere in your life there's this place of, of stuckness that you are, you are crying out to God to bring you through. You're crying out to God, and maybe you didn't know it was called breakthrough. I'm going to give you a, a, a word to call it this morning. You're crying out for a breakthrough. We're going to look this, through this series at what does breakthrough look like? How does it happen And when can we expect it? Here in Ezra chapter 1, we're going to see the beginnings of of breakthrough. Before I jump into the scriptures, though, I need to to help you to understand where the story of Ezra falls in the picture of this book. This is the Word of God. It is truth without any mixture of error. This book was given for our instruction. The Bible says of itself that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, for correcting, for rebuking, and for training in righteousness so that the people of God might be fully equipped for every good work. This is what the Bible says of itself. And we need to understand where the book of Ezra falls in the story of God's redemption plan. History belongs to God. It is his story. This is the way we understand it. Now, the way that you understand history will determine how you understand your present and how you understand your future. And I want to encourage you today to begin to understand history and your present and your future in terms of a sovereign God who controls all things. That's what you're going to see here in the book of Ezra, particularly here in chapter 1. Let me help you see where this falls in the story 
of God's redeeming love throughout history. It begins in the year 2000 BC with a dude named Abraham. If you go to Genesis chapter 12, you'll find Abraham's story begins with God calling out to him and saying, Abraham, I want you to get up from where you are, and I want you to go to a land that I'm going to show you. I'm not going to tell you where it is. I'm not going to show you what it looks like until you get there, but I want you to get up, and I want you to go. And the Bible says, amazingly, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham got up from where he was and followed God by faith. The Bible says that Abraham was a man of great faith. He was the patriarch of a people that we know today as Israel. The Israelites were his descendants, the ones that we know as the Jews, the Hebrews. These were the descendants of this patriarch named Abraham, who at the ripe old age of 75 got up and went according to the command of God, and God blessed him greatly. You fast forward from there to the year 1446 B.C., and now the descendants of Abraham have become numerous, but they're living in the land of Egypt as slaves. They had gone there three generations removed from Abraham following the leadership of Joseph, and they had ended up as slaves in Egypt. And in 1446 B.C., God leads them out of Egypt under the direction of a guy named Moses, and they walk through the Red Sea on dry ground. The armies of Pharaoh are crushed, and they begin to walk for 40 years in the wilderness until God leads them in to the Promised Land in 1406 B.C., the land that was promised to Abraham God begins to give them in 1406 B.C. Fast forward another 400 years, and you come to what we would call the golden age of the Israelites. King David, he is the man. I mean, he's the guy that everybody looked to and said, nobody's ever going to be like King David. He was called a man after God's own heart. He was the one that led the Israelites to finally, after all that time, finally take control of all of the land that God had promised to Abraham a thousand years before. And King David led the people, and he was so, such a great leader and a great king. But after King David, it was a downhill spiral. For 400 years, the people began to walk farther and farther from God. And that 400 years between 1000 B.C. and 607 B.C. was characterized by these cycles of idolatry. Turning away from God, going after other gods, going after false gods, and seeking to be faithful to anyone but God most of the time. And in 607 B.C., God had had enough. And he began what we call the exile to Babylon. Now, they couldn't say that God didn't warn them. In fact, for 100 years or more, and we could say probably two, or th- two to 300 years, God had been sending these guys known as the prophets, guys like Isaiah and Jeremiah. He'd been sending these guys to come to the Israelites and say, listen up, guys, if you don't turn from this idolatry, if you don't stop sinning against the Lord, he's going to have to punish you. Parents, you know this moment, right? You've had this moment, parents, where you say to your kid, okay, I've told you once, I've told you twice. Now, judgment is coming, right, parents? You know this moment. And judgment came beginning in 607 B.C., a judgment that lasted 20 years. The first exile was in 607. This is where Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and others were carried off into captivity. There was a second exile around 600 B.C., and then in 586 B.C., the unthinkable happened. Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the world at that time, the leader of the nation known as Babylon, marched into Jerusalem, destroyed the walls, destroyed the temple, wreaked havoc on everyone there, and carried the few that were remaining alive after that day into captivity in Babylon. The exile was complete. 
But God had made a promise. This is what we're going to talk about today. God had made a promise that while they were going to be judged for their idolatry, for turning away from God, for their sin, they, while God was going to have to judge them, at the same time, His grace was still sufficient. For He promised them, you will go to Babylon, but you will only remain there for 70 years. An event that we see in Daniel chapter 5, 539 B.C., a new king comes on the scene. Cyrus, the Persian king, came into Babylon and did to Babylon what the Babylonians had done to Jerusalem in 586. He came in and he took control of Babylon. In one night, they overtook the Babylonians and the Persians became the world power. And the very next year, Cyrus said to the Jews, you can go home. And in 537, exactly 70 years after the first exiles left to go to Babylon, the first exiles began to return to Jerusalem. All this teaches us this, that God keeps His promises. And the story of Ezra occurs in these years, 539, 538, 537 B.C. You begin to see Ezra chapter 1. With that thought in mind, those, that little short history, would you stand with me in honor of God's Word as we jump into this powerful book and as we see the breakthrough that God brings. So it says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, remember this is 538 B.C., in Cyrus's very first year there in Babylon, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up, notice those words, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithradath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazzar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them. Thirty basins of gold, one thousand basins of silver, twenty-nine censers, thirty bowls of gold, four hundred and ten bowls of silver, and one thousand other vessels. All the vessels of gold and of silver were five thousand Four hundred. All these did Sheshbazzar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. You can be seated. And Father God, as we 
explore together the beginnings of the breakthrough that you brought for your people some 2,500 years ago, Lord. As we look to them today, God, may you remind us, teach us, that the same God who brought breakthrough 2,500 years ago is still in that business today. And Lord, you know our need. You know our stuckness. And we pray, Father, that you would stir us as you stirred them. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we talk about the beginnings of breakthrough this morning. I just want to give you three simple principles that come right out of this first chapter. And God does some amazing things in this book as we're going to see over the course of the next six weeks. But we're going to talk about where breakthrough begins today. Where do I look if I'm in that place where I'm stuck? Where do I, where do I look for God to bring me the breakthrough? First thing we see here in verse 1 is this, that breakthrough begins when God stirs up our spirits. I love this picture of the stirring up. It's, it's this picture of, of a stagnant pool of water that is just rank because it has been sitting there so long. And God begins to stir that water and begins to bring new life in that place. And I don't want you to think about that this morning. Some of you have, have experienced in your life the stirring of God. You've experienced those moments when God begins a new work in you. Maybe it was the day of salvation when God began that work in you. Maybe it was a time when you came back to the Lord and you experienced His work in a new way. But you've experienced that stirring of the Lord. When God begins to move, your spirit begins to move your heart. And you know that something new is taking place and you may not even know exactly what it is. But you know that it's good. Breakthrough begins when God stirs up our spirits. The first word we want to say there, letter A, and that first point is this, that God always keeps his promises. Look at what he says there. In the first year of Cyrus, 538 B.C., the king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. In order for you to get that, you've got to know what God said through Jeremiah. So if we go over to Jeremiah 29, if you want to flip there in your Bibles, or if you just want to look at it on the screen, this is fine. But Jeremiah chapter 29, we hear a word from the Lord spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. And this takes place prior to the days of Ezra. God is making a promise a generation before Ezra through the prophet Jeremiah. And his promise is very specific. Look what the Lord says. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and I will bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you. We love this verse, don't we? Jeremiah 29, 11. Catch it in its context here. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart and I will be found by you, 
declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back. Bring you back to the place from which I have sent you into exile. So God speaks through the prophet Jeremiah, a generation removed before Ezekiel, and says, yes, you're going to Babylon, but you're only going to be there for 70 years, and then I'm promising that I'm going to bring you back. And so in Ezra chapter 1, verse 1, it says, that is exactly what the Lord was doing, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. As a matter of fact, if you were to read through the book of Jeremiah, you would find a dozen or so promises just like this. Yes, Babylon is happening. Exile is coming. But return will take place just 70 years after. If we believe that the Lord keeps His promises, the next thing we need to understand is this, that God leaves nothing to chance. There are two ways that looking at the events in your life, at the events of history and the events that you're waiting to come in the future. There, there are some who will live their lives according to chance. Well, I really hope that so-and-so is going to take place. I, I really hope, yeah, God's given us some promises. I really hope that God's going to come through on those. I really hope that Jesus is going to come back and do all the wonderful things he said. There are some who live their lives according to a place of chance. And there are others who live their lives according to a biblical understanding of God's sovereignty. This is what God's sovereignty means. When you look in the Scriptures and you see them praying, even the book of Acts, they prayed, O sovereign Lord, when they were encountering persecution. When you, when you begin to look at the, what the Bible says about God's sovereignty, this is what it means. It means that the God of the universe who created all things, by His word they were spoken into existence, out of nothing He made everything, that that God is in complete and utter control of all the events that happen in our lives, in history, and in the future. That's what sovereignty means. And sometimes we live in this place where, well, yeah, I believe in a sovereign God, but we somehow limit God's sovereignty to either the events in the past or just to the big things, we don't think about God's sovereignty in terms of the everyday events of our lives. You see, it'll change your life, church. It will change your life when you begin to see a God who is so big, who is so big that every circumstance of your life is in His hand. There's a biblical principle that says this, that that which is true of the greater is also true of of the lesser. Listen to Proverbs 21.1. Proverbs 21.1 says this, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. That means he's in complete control of the heart of the king. What happened in Ezra 1.1? You have this pagan king, Cyrus, king of the Persians. This is not, this is not a follower of the one true and living God. And God gets a hold of this king and stirs this unbelieving king's heart to do exactly what God had said was going to take place. There was no reason whatsoever that Cyrus should desire to be a part of fulfilling God's promises given through the prophet Jeremiah. And yet that's exactly what he did. And you're going to see something deeper here in just a minute. The king's heart is a stream of water. It's this picture of if I were to pour out water in my hand 
that I can dump that wherever I want to. This is the picture. God can do whatever he wants with that which is in his hand. He turns it wherever he will. And if that's true of the heart of the most powerful man walking the earth in 538 B.C., Cyrus the Persian, and that's true for us as well. The reality is, folks, we, we find ourselves in a day where we're more likely to complain about our political leaders than to pray for them. Perhaps instead of complaining about our economic situation, or our political situation, perhaps instead of complaining about those things, what would it be like if the people of God were truly to begin to pray instead of complaining about our leaders saying, God, would you stir up their hearts? We saw what you did with Cyrus, God. Would you stir up the hearts of our leaders, that they might walk in righteousness before you? You say, well, they don't even believe in God. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. God's sovereignty is not limited by whether or not we are following Him or not. That's a very important understanding for us to take home with us today. Church, your God is not limited by whether or not those who are standing in opposition to you trust Him or not. He is sovereign over all things. So breakthrough begins when God begins to stir. It begins with the movement of God in the lives of people. It also begins when God speaks through the Scriptures. Look at verses 2-4. through four. So Cyrus makes this proclamation. Of course, God's orchestrating this whole deal. Everything that's happening here is happening because God is doing it. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, here's his proclamation. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem. That's a reference to the temple. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up. Now notice those words for a minute. Let him go up is not a command, it's a word of permission. What he's basically saying is, all you Jews who are, who are living all around Babylon now, I'm giving you permission to return to your homeland. Now sitting here this morning, we would go, well, surely they would all go, right? Why would you stay in exile? Well, as we're going to find, things have become pretty comfortable in Babylon, and only a remnant was willing to get up and to go back. But he says, whoever wants to may go up, go back to your home, and let each survivor, here's the bonus, verse 4, and let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. So it's not just, okay, you guys are free to go home. It's, I'm commanding all of your neighbors to load you guys down with good things to take back home with you. Are you catching the picture here? It would have been one thing for God to have stirred Cyrus's heart to let the people go back to their homeland. That would have been an act of grace, would it not? But Cyrus goes the extra mile under the stirring of God and his spirit. God goes the, Cyrus goes the extra mile and says, okay, not just that, but I'm calling upon all your neighbors, the people that live around you, for them to supply all of your needs, for them to give to you so that you might do this work. Something deeper is happening, though, and it, and it relates to this thought that God always 
fulfills his word. If you have your Bibles there, flip over to Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44, it'll be on the screen here in just a second, but Isaiah 44, you need to understand before I read this, Isaiah writes around the year 700 B.C. He's in the 700s B.C. Ezra is taking place in the 500s B.C. There is about 200 years difference between these two events. 200 years difference between these two events. Listen to what Isaiah spoke in Isaiah chapter 44. Thus says the Lord, speaking for the Lord here, this prophet speaks and he says, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins, who says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers. Now, context for a moment. Isaiah is speaking to the people of Jerusalem before Jerusalem was ever destroyed. In fact, things were going really well in Isaiah's day. Now think about how nuts the people thought he was. When Isaiah comes out into the city streets and begins to proclaim the word of the Lord and says, this is the God who created all things, they went, yeah, amen, we know that God. This is the God who does everything of his own accord, yep, that's our God. This is the God who's going to rebuild Jerusalem. And they went, what? Say what? <laughs> rebuild Jerusalem? What are you talking about? This guy's off his rocker. Jerusalem is fine, buddy. The temple's right over there. You know, the big shiny place there. That, that, that's the temple. What are you talking about? It's going to be rebuilt. You see, God was speaking through Isaiah about events that were yet to take place, but that were fulfilled leading up to the days of Ezra. But listen to verse 28. I, I love this verse. They shall be rebuilt. Who's going to do this work? Who says of Cyrus, calls him by name. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. And if you think that's a fluke, look at Isaiah 45. The next chapter is all about Cyrus and what God is going to lead this man to do. 200 years before Ezra, before Cyrus, Isaiah is speaking and saying, this is what God's going to do. And just so you'll be sure to know that it's God, I'm going to call the dude by name. Cyrus is his name. He's going to be the one that's going to do this work. This is the sovereign God. This is the sovereign God who said, I'm going to name the guy that's going to fulfill this promise. It's going to be 70 years. This is how it's going to go down. This is what it looks like. A God who always fulfills his word. But not only that, as we saw there, the Lord moves people to provide for his work. 
There's all of, all of these pieces that are moving here in Ezra chapter 1. It, it, is the war, it is the Lord who is moving each one. He moves Cyrus to make this proclamation that the Jews might return. He moves the people to get up and to go back to their homeland. But he also moves all of their neighbors to contribute to them, to basically provide for every need they would have, not just on the journey to get back home, but in the rebuilding of the temple. And all that was going to take place, God provided for it all. Philippians 4.19, here's a promise for you, church. Paul writes, in my God, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And then he spouts out this word of praise. To God, to God, our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Is that a promise you're claiming in your life these days? I'm not talking about any twisted name it and claim it theology where we, where we pretend that God is some cosmic vending machine that's just bent there. He's just basically there to provide for whatever we, we think our, our, heart, every little heart, our every little heart's desire. That's not the picture here. Nor is God some cosmic janitor that's just coming around behind us to sweep up our messes. No, this is the sovereign God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords saying, I will supply all of your need. Why? Because he loves you. And even more so because His glory is displayed when that happens. When the needs of God's people are met as they were in the days of Ezra, who gets the glory? God does. And He is worthy. I love the way Mark Batterson talks about this in the book The Circle Maker. He says, when God gives a vision, He always makes provision. God will never call you to anything that he will not equip you for. He will provide every need that you have when you are walking in his ways. For those who stepped up in the days of Ezra, God brought a breakthrough that was above and beyond what they thought was going to take place. It would have been one thing for them to have been released from exile to return home empty-handed, but he sent them home packing the goods of Persia. So what does this mean for us? Let me bring it home for us this morning. Breakthrough begins when God stirs our spirits, when He speaks through His Scriptures. But here's our part. Breakthrough begins when we step out of safety. Church, we are living in a culture that exalts safety as a God worthy of being worshipped. And we've talked about in weeks past how so many of our prayers are are grounded toward this thing of safety. And yet, the God of the universe who created you, in Him you live and move and have your being. He has not promised you safety. In fact, we're reading the Chronicles of Narnia books by C.S. Lewis with our kids this year. And I love the description of the God character Aslan. He's this, he's this great lion, and when the kids see him, they're, they're fearful. And they say, the kids ask of Aslan, they say, well, is he safe? And everyone laughs. And so, no, he's certainly not safe, but he is very good. And church, that is your God. He has not promised you safety, security, and the things of this world, but he has promised you that he is good. And that's what makes the difference. And so for us, it means that there come these moments like it did for him, them here in verse 5. 
It says, then rose up the heads of the fathers, the priests, the Levites. These these rose up, as we see in chapter 2, 50,000 of them rose up. But that was just a small remnant, chapter 8 says. That was just a small remnant of the total number of those who were carried away into Babylon. Just a few were willing to rise up and follow God back to Jerusalem. But why did they rise up? Look what it says. Everyone whose spirit God had stirred. So once again, it's God who's doing the stirring. The stirring of this small remnant of those who were willing to, by faith, step up and return to Jerusalem. You see, they left the comforts of Babylon for the unknown. Babylon had become very comfortable now that Cyrus was in charge. He was much more benevolent than the kings that had gone before him. And that many of them were looking at the situation and going, you know what? Maybe it's not so bad here in Babylon because... Remember the last time we saw Jerusalem? That place was a wreck. Why would we want to go back there when we got everything that we could possibly want here in Babylon? But there were 50,000 that were stirred up by God, and they were the first to step out by faith and return to do the work of the Lord. What was that work? You'll notice throughout this chapter in the background, there's this work to be done. And it's not just to return to Jerusalem, but there's a rebuilding project that needs to take place. Because in 586 B.C., the temple was destroyed. Now, we don't get the whole imagery of the temple, but I want to help you with it this morning. The temple represented for the Jewish people the presence of God among his people. When he said, you're going to be my people and I'm going to be your God, the temple was the constant reminder of that promise. And when the temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C., they felt as if God had left them. And that's why it says, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and we wept as we remembered Zion. We remember what our lives used to be like when God was with us. And now we're in this place of exile where it feels like God is not with us in anymore have you ever felt that way have you ever felt like you were in that time of exile or maybe once you had been walking with God and it seems as though God has left you and even though you know the promise of God repeatedly in the scriptures I will never leave you I will never forsake you you still have this moment you see God was sending them back to rebuild the temple but that was just a picture a small picture of a greater reality You see, God had sent them back to rebuild the temple, which pictures two realities that we need to be aware of. Number one, the rebuilding of the temple pictures the redemption of all believers. The Bible says no longer do we look to a temple in Jerusalem. It says you, church, you are the temple of the living God. He now dwells in you, not in a structure made by the hands of men. No, the very structures that God created, your very own bodies, now God dwells within you. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit because of the redemptive plan that God worked out in Jesus Christ. Christ died on the cross that you might become the temple of God. But on the grander scheme, and something we're going to talk about more as we walk through this series together, God was displaying for them this reality that comes from Psalm 77, that the temple was not just a building that pictured the presence of God among his people. The temple represented the whole earth. 
the very design of the temple, as you look at the description of it in Chronicles, you see the design of the temple It was all about picturing the entire universe that God had created. And what was God's plan for that? Isaiah said he is looking forward to a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. The plan of God is not just to rebuild a temple in the book of Ezra. It's not just to rebuild individual lives in our day. But looking down the pike, looking down into into the future that lays ahead of us, we begin to see that God has a much bigger plan of which we are invited to be a part. That He is creating for us a new heavens and a new earth. We'll talk more about that in the weeks to come. But I want to leave you with a word from Isaiah 51. Listen to how Isaiah was led to describe God. The Lord speaks through Isaiah and says, I am the Lord your God who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. How many of you have experienced that at the, at the beach? Those moments when the waves they just roar. It's a deafening sound. They said, I'm the God. How, how, how do those waves crash upon the beaches? I am the God who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name, and I have put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand, establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth and saying to Zion, you are my people. And church, this is the word for you today. The word for you today is this. God is saying to you, you are my people, but I'm not just going to put a label on you. My desire is to stir you up. And churches, let's go ahead and say it. A lot of times we don't really like to be stirred. A lot of times kicking back in the spiritual lazy boy is exactly where we're going to stay. But think where we would be today if Abraham had stayed in the spiritual lazy boy instead of getting up to take those first steps with God. We'd be in a world of hurt. Think where we would be if Moses, rather than denying his claim as the son of Pharaoh's daughter, if rather, than, rather than denying that, if he had said, you know what, it's real comfortable here in the palace, I'm just not going to follow the Lord in the freeing of his people. Think where we would be today if, Dan, if David had said, you know what, this whole idea of being a king, that's a whole lot of work. I think I'm just going to stay here and be a shepherd boy. Think where we would be today if those in the days of Ezra, in verse 5 here, if they had said, you know what, it's all fine and good that Cyrus wants us to go back to Jerusalem, but we really have grown to love Babylon, so we're just going to stay here. You see, church, what God was doing here in Ezra chapter 1 is he was preparing the way for the Lord. He was preparing the way for Jesus to come because if Jerusalem wasn't rebuilt, if the temple wasn't reconstructed, then there wasn't a place for the Savior of the world to come and to die for the sins of the people as had been prophesied all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. So what does that mean for us? Church, it means this. It means it's time for us to take a step of faith. And it's such a small step. It's such a small step that God blesses. I want you to picture the Israelites as Joshua led them to the borders of the promised land. 1406 B.C., they arrive at the borders of the land that had been promised to Abraham some 1,600 years earlier. And when they arrived there, they found that there's an obstacle right in their way. It's called the Jordan River, and it was at flood stage 
which means you don't cross the Jordan River. So there's this moment of, okay, God's led us here, but there is, there is an impenetrable obstacle in front of us. We can't go into the promised land because we got a flooded river in our way. And what did God say? Take a step in the river, boys. And as soon as they took that first tiny step into the water, the Bible says that that river split wide open and the people crossed that river on dry ground. Fully and completely the work of God, but the requirement for them was one solitary step. Somebody's got to step out in the river. Generations later, there was a group of 12 guys in a boat. And Jesus himself comes walking out to them on the water. And one of them gets bold enough to say, Hey, Jesus, that looks pretty cool. Well, well, can I come out there with you? And Jesus says, Come on. And only one of those 12, now we criticize him because he lost faith and began to sink, but only one of those 12 guys got to experience walking on water, even if it was just for a brief moment. It's time for some of us to step out of the boat. And I could give you story after story, both from the Word of God and from experiences all around us of people who said, yes, Lord, I'll take that step of faith and I'll step out. And then God steps in and brings the breakthrough. The breakthrough always begins with God, and He's always the one that brings it to its completion. But somewhere in the midst, there's a step of faith for God's people. I want to bring you something that I've been praying about. I want to invite us to take a spiritual journey together over these next six weeks. Let me lay it out for you, and and then I'm going to issue a charge for us. I want you to pray this week. I want you to pray about joining me for a 40-day journey beginning a week from tomorrow. This week that's ahead of us, I want you to pray. And here's the prayer that I want to ask you to offer up to the Lord. God, would you stir up my heart? I love love what the old revival preacher Gypsy Smith was famous for saying. He He said, you want to see a real revival? Here's where it begins. Get yourself a piece of chalk, and you go into your room, and you draw a circle on the floor. And then you kneel down in that circle and you pray that God will bring revival to everyone in that circle. That's where revival begins. In the same way, I'm inviting you, I'm just saying, let's, let's consider what it would look like for us to take that kind of a journey together. So we'll begin to pray, God, would you stir up my heart? And I, and I want to be real clear as I walk through this with you. I do not want anyone in this room to do this just because your pastor asks you to. In fact, I want to discourage that. I want to discourage that wholeheartedly. Do not do this because I threw out this idea or your pastor asked you to. That's not the idea here. I want you to pray this week, God, would you stir up my heart? And Lord, if you would stir my heart in this direction, then I want to say yes to you. But if God doesn't stir your heart in this direction, then you are completely released from that. God, stir up our hearts. Toward what? First of all, 40 days beginning a week from tomorrow. We're going to read this book together. It's called Draw the Circle. It is full of stories of people who've stepped out on faith, who've taken that first step into the river, out of the boat, and God stepped in and did amazing things. We're going to share this together over these 40 days. 
Secondly, we're going to set aside Fridays during those six weeks. We're going to set aside the Fridays to fast. Sun up to sundown, this is what I call a Jewish fast. This is what they would practice in Jesus' day. If you want to eat breakfast before the sun comes up, go for it. If you want to eat dinner after the sun goes down, go for it. That's fine. But sun up to sundown, we're going to fast. We're going to abstain from food and spend time, extra time on those Fridays in prayer. What are we going to pray for? We're going to pray for the very thing we're going to be talking about on Sunday mornings. We're going to pray for breakthroughs. Breakthroughs in our lives, in our church, in our community. We're going to pray that God would step in and do things like we have not seen before. And again, I said from the very beginning, some of you here this morning, you are stuck in your marriage. You've got that place of stuckness in, in your workplace. Maybe your whole life just feels stuck, and you're crying out to God, God, would you bring a breakthrough to me? May this be the beginning of that. May this be our first step into the river. Forty simple days. But again, I want to emphasize this to you. If God is not calling you to it, if God is not urging you in this direction, then don't do it. But if he is, let's do this together. I've asked the Lord for 70 people among us. 70 years in Babylon, I've asked the Lord for 70 people among us that would take this step together. If God's calling you to be among those 70, then we'll begin next week. I'll explain next week how we're going to begin. You don't have to worry about that. For now, your prayer is this, God. Would you stir my heart? And if you're stirring my heart toward this journey, then give me the courage to say yes to you. By the way, we'll finish this journey on Good Friday, April the 3rd. At that time, we're going to rejoice together in what God has done. Breakthroughs that have happened, we're going to give God all the glory just as they did, as they entered into Jerusalem, as we're going to see in weeks to come. As they entered into Jerusalem, it's constantly God is getting the glory. Great things He has done. Our reading, our fasting, our praying, those are just the tiny steps into the river and out of the boat. We want a glory in what our sovereign God has done for us. And so that's your invitation this week. Stir it up in our hearts, God. Would you stir something new in us? Our promise is He who begins a good work in you He will bring it to completion. I'm praying that God is going to begin a new work in Corinth Baptist Church in these days. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we prepare to share one final song together this morning, God, I want to begin this prayer for us. God, that you would stir up our hearts, our spirits. Lord, if you would desire to stir up our utter existence during this time, Lord, we want to submit ourselves to you for that. God, and even saying that, we know that, that your stirring is not limited by our permission for you to stir us.
But Lord, help us to submit ourselves to you nonetheless. God, would you stir us? Would you speak to us through your word? And Lord God, would you lead us in those paths of righteousness where there are tiny steps of faith that we must take? To get up out of our Babylon, out of our comfort zone, out of the place that has become easy for us, comfortable for us, safe for us, God. Would you cause us, as you did these in the days of Ezra, to rise up and to walk with you. And Father, you know our stuckness. You know the obstacles that stand before us. You know our Jordan rivers. You know the fears inside and outside of ourselves, Lord, that we are wrestling with. And only You can bring the breakthrough. And so, God, would You do it? Stir us up. Speak to us through Your Word, God. And would You cause us to come to that place, that step of faith where You step in and You do immeasurably more than all we ask or think according to Your power at work within us. Lord, may this song embody our response. Stirred up in our hearts, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name.